At this point, I'm going to invite uh, Kirk Carlson to come up. Kirk is one of our elders, graciously said he'd love to preach today in Aaron's absence. At the same time, we have Children's Church available. If you want to head back, if you're age three, four, five, or in kindergarten, you've got permission to head back for Children's Church. Got some great gals in the back ready to take you out. So this is the time. Well, what a wonderful Sunday this is to join together in worship and uh, singing the praises of the Lord this morning. It's a daylight savings time morning. Even though I lost an hour of sleep, Brenda tells me I can't fall asleep during the sermon (laughs) this time. Um, This morning we're taking a little deviation from our series in Acts. I know you've already got the... Got a bookmark in Acts for uh, that series, but we're going back to Isaiah chapter 6. And we'll be reading the first eight verses of that chapter. Isaiah is a fairly sizable book, so it should be fairly easy to find. While you're finding that, I'd like to share the four main points that I intend to discuss in this message. This is about the commissioning of Isaiah as a prophet. The commissioning to service involved a holy vision. The Lord wants our eyes on him. And because we have that holy vision, we see a contrast between his holiness and our sinfulness. That brings about a holy dread. With that holy dread, the Lord wants to have us confront our sin. But the Lord provides a holy grace, a way to atone for the sin and to be restored to him. And because we've gone through those steps, we're ready for a holy purpose. The Lord desires that we are obedient to his will. Isaiah chapter 6 is the story of Isaiah's commissioning as a prophet, and it begins by telling us about him seeing the Lord. As we look at this, I'd like to keep in the back of our minds some context from some other scriptures about seeing the Lord. This is from the book of Exodus, chapter 33. Moses said, Please show me your glory. In the Lord's response, he said, You cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there's a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I pass by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face you shall not see. In today's text from the book of Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah has recorded a vision of the glory of the Lord as it was revealed to him. That same vision that Isaiah had is further revealed to us through Isaiah's written record. So, we too may behold the glory of the Lord. And look upon this vision of a heavenly throne room with some humble reverence. Will you please stand, if you're able, for the reading of God's word? In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him, stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, 
and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Father God, we see in this scripture that you had a message for your people. That you called and commissioned Isaiah to be the prophet that delivered that message. Lord, may it be for us that what was revealed about you to the prophet Isaiah, that we may mix that revelation with our own faith, so that we too may behold your glory. Help us to turn aside from everything that distracts us this hour and see this great sight with humble reverence. Lord, give us the ears to hear and eyes to see, the hearts of flesh to know and receive the message that you have for us today. Amen. Not often, but on a rare occasion, I like to go to an art museum. Now, I'm kind of cheap, so... I want to get the most for my money, so I'll kind of figure out how big the art museum is, how many pieces there are to look at, and I'll make the most of my time. I end up basically seeing each picture or painting in just a few seconds, and then I move on to the next one, and the next one, and the next one. However, every once in a while, there's something that is just absolutely striking when I look at the picture or the sculpture. There's, like, there's so much going on. And you just have to take it all in and look at all the pieces and, and really get a grip of what is going on. This passage kind of had that same feeling for me, that there, there's just so much going on in just a few short verses. So let's take a look at what Isaiah is describing here. Our text starts off by dating what was occurring, saying, in the year that King Uzziah died, we know from historical texts that King Uzziah died in the year 740 B.C. In the arc of biblical history, this is after the time of Judges and it's into the time of Kings. In fact, Uzziah began his reign about 180 years after King David. But this reference to King Uzziah in his death was not merely to place it on a calendar. The death of King Uzziah meant something much more significant. The story of King Uzziah can be found in 2 Chronicles chapter 26. Israel had at this point been split into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom of Judah. Uzziah is one of the many kings that came after Saul and David and Solomon, and he reigned in the southern kingdom of Judah. But he was a king that was better than most other kings. He wasn't 
another David. He wasn't that good, but he, he was a very good king nevertheless. He took the throne at the young age of 16, and he reigned for 52 years. Now, that's a, a very long time. Uh, we're not used to seeing our leaders last that long in, in power or in office. For some perspective, uh, 52 years ago, I believe our president was Richard Nixon. So he, that's certainly a, a long time. By the time of King Uzziah's death, most of the people hadn't lived under any other king. During his reign, Uzziah sought God. The Lord blessed him in overcoming his enemies. He built up cities and fortified them. He built up towers in Jerusalem. He built cisterns out in the wilderness to feed his flocks. And uh, He had farmers and vineyards and he built up a strong army for the nation's protection. However, as Uzziah grew stronger and stronger, he became arrogant. And that arrogance led to his destruction. One day, Uzziah entered the temple to burn incense, even though he was not one of the consecrated priests that were assigned to that specific task. In judgment for his arrogance, the Lord gave him leprosy right then and there, right in the temple, just broke out on his forehead. He was quickly and immediately escorted out of the temple by the priest, and he spent the remainder of his days quarantined in his own house. He was still the king, but his son did most of the actual governing for him. Because Uzziah reigned over such a time of great prosperity <clears throat> for the kingdom, his death was a public tragedy and a great loss, a great sorrow for the people. Especially for Isaiah himself. Isaiah was a cousin to Uzziah. So this must have been a great loss for him. And now, with the king's death, so much of things must have just felt pulled out from under them. Their prosperous times in the kingdom were built on a king, and now he's gone. The northern kingdoms were in chaos. Their own kingdom of Judah still had enemies, and they were growing stronger. Now, the king that was giving them hope was dead. The throne was empty. The king was dead. The throne was empty. Well, the king was dead if you're looking for a mere earthly king. The throne was empty if you're looking for a mere earthly throne. This brings me to my first main point. We need a holy vision. The Lord wants our eyes on him. The hope of Israel should never have been in an earthly ruler, but repeatedly it was something other than the Lord that became the hope of the people. The hope that the people were putting in King Uzziah was no exception. Psalm 146, verses 3 and 4 warn us, Put not your trust in princes, in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth, and on that very day his plans perish. So Isaiah's vision, Isaiah's vision here opens with seeing the Lord seated upon the throne. God took Isaiah's eyes off of what had become his idol, that earthly king, to look upon the one true king, a king that would not die. And one who's seated on a throne 
that will never be vacated. I believe it's appropriate to examine ourselves here. Is there a King Uzziah in our lives? Is there something that we're putting too much hope in for ourselves? Something that we're spending too much time and energy thinking about? That's taking our eyes off of his glory? Do we have such a sharp focus on our jobs or that we just don't look to him? Do our family or other relationships take precedence over worship and prayer? Does our bank account and financial state give us security? Are we finding our peace and security in him? So, are you like me and notice that I have to ask myself these questions again and again. Even though I correct myself and get my eyes back on the Lord every today and every tomorrow there seems to be some distraction that takes my eyes off him the Lord wants our eyes on him although Isaiah had his eyes on an earthly king the tragedy that of his death brought about a shift in the pattern of looking to his earthly king for us as well Sometimes it takes a tragedy to shift our focus. Instead of feeling like we're on stable and steady ground, we're suddenly faced with a job loss or a loved one's death or some other tragedy. And even then we can be a stubborn people and just try to ride it out and get through the chaos in the hopes that things are going to get better, that we're going to persevere and get through it on our own and get back to stable ground. But... The Lord, in his sovereign purposes, can use that tragedy for our benefit, for his glory, if we put our eyes on him. Back to the text, and I'll do a quick run through of the things that we're seeing through Isaiah's eyes. Isaiah said, I saw the Lord seated on the throne. Note here that this is not just a chair, but a throne. Only those people with power and authority use a throne. Note the posture of sitting. Posture of sitting is a mark of stateliness or a solemnness. Sitting is done after work is accomplished, or sitting is done once a person in authority that's passing judgment. So this is high and lifted up. This is a further description of the Lord on the throne, depicting a stately, majestic position. It's high and lifted up. The throne is above the throne of the King Uzziah. It's above the throne of any earthly ruler that had ever been or any earthly ruler that ever will be. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Often rulers and kings of the day would be wearing these long flowing robes. Where we find the word train, that was the translation of the Hebrew word shul, which probably meant something more precisely like a hem. So it was the, the hem of his robe that filled the temple. If the hem of his robe filled the temple, how big is that throne? How big is the one that's seated on that throne? So much of the description describes his glory, his majesty. And it refers to the throne and his posture and what he's wearing. But notice what Isaiah does not describe. Among all the other clear details, the majesty that's predicted, there's no description of the Lord himself. Let's not forget 
what I read in Exodus 33. Moses had asked the Lord to see his glory. The Lord told him, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. I believe that because of this, Isaiah only had an indirect glimpse. He didn't see everything. The words that Isaiah describes here of what he did see tells us all that we really need to know. All that we can really bear to know. In verse 2, above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two they covered their face. With two they covered their feet. And with two they flew. The word seraphim is a plural of the Hebrew word seraph, meaning to burn. It's not completely evident from the text why Isaiah named them this way. Isaiah chapter 6 is the only place in Scripture where we actually have a reference to seraphim. It's mostly interpreted as that the burning was their burning desire to glorify God. I note that they had two wings to cover their face, or even though they're heavenly spiritual creatures, they too were humble. They would not dare to look upon the glory of the Lord, just as we cannot. With two, they covered their feet. They covered their feet because they were on holy ground, being in the Lord's presence. But they're also humble, even to the point of taking care to not be perceived as directing their own footsteps. But even their feet are submitted to the will of the Lord. With the remaining two wings, they flew, doing work to service the Lord. Aside from the wings, you notice that there isn't any other physical attribute of the seraphim described. I think that's intentional. The Lord wants us to focus on him and not on the seraphim. But thinking about the wings, you notice there's more wings for the careful devotion of the Lord, the careful worship than there are for the flying around and being of service to him. I think it's possible for us as well to get distracted by being in service and we need to spend that time in worship and giving him glory. If we seek his face and worship him. In verse 3, and one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. So what does holy mean? I know we've all heard that term many times, and we've used it many times as well. Do we really grasp what that means? In the days of Isaiah, other cultures used that word, and other tribes had had that term as well. And for them, that term meant deity. And that's all. Those Foreign cultures had foreign gods, and they had a lot of them, and they really weren't all that special. It just meant deity. For the Israelites, though, it meant a whole lot more. Holy is the very essence of God, and it encompasses all of the Lord's attributes. 
is essentially the godness of God. I mean, set apart, completely unlike us. As we look to the Holy One, the one that is set apart and contemplate his attributes, our understanding of holiness begins to more and more bring into the idea of righteousness and purity as well. Now, regarding the threefold holy, it was common in the language of the day that for emphasis they would repeat it. If you recall in the New Testament when Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, he was repeating that truly for emphasis. Here in Isaiah, the seraphim declare not that he is just holy or even holy, holy, but he is holy, holy, holy. This is communicating that the Lord is holy to the utmost. There's nothing holier than him. He is holy and complete in that holiness. And in verse 3, the vision suddenly expands from this heavenly throne room to the whole earth. The whole earth is filled with his glory. The entirety of all creation speaks to his glory. Everything that was seen in the earth was by his hand. It's by his creation. We can see the majestic wonders of his works in a myriad of ways within creation. While we look on those things with wonder, we realize that everything that delights our senses, everything that we see, all point to the creator. It's interesting to note that the Jews in the day thought that the glory of the Lord was to be confined to their own land. But contrary to that, the seraphim told the truth. His glory cannot be contained to just Israel, but the whole earth is filled with his glory. In verse 4, And the whole foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. See, when God shows up, things shake up. The mountain trembled when the Lord appeared to Moses at Mount Sinai. If the solid, lifeless, material things tremble, I would expect that Isaiah and all of us would also tremble in his presence. Those first four verses set an incredible scene, but we've got to move on to what happens next. Wouldn't you think it would be an extraordinary privilege, a blessing, to witness the Lord on the throne, to have the ears that heard these celestial beings crying out, Holy, holy, holy. Let's look at Isaiah's response. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. This brings my my second main point. We need a holy distress. The Lord wants us to confront our sin. Isaiah has this glorious, wonderful vision the likes of which are probably even beyond adequately describing. He has many words here, but I I just have the sense that there was more to it that he just couldn't put down and put into words. It is that awesome. And seeing this, he also saw something else, something jarring, something devastating. 
The presence of the Lord and his holiness and righteousness effectively shone a bright spotlight on himself. And he suddenly saw himself clearly in all his uncleanness. I believe that Isaiah got the entire big picture of his sin in that very moment. We generally and thankfully get our those pictures of our sin in smaller pieces that we can deal with. Now, I want to be clear on something. It wasn't just his sin that caused Isaiah distress. He had been sinful already before this vision, and he wasn't ruined by it then. And it wasn't just the presence of God that caused him to feel distressed. By verse 8, he's, already, he's speaking to God unafraid. Now, the distress of Isaiah came when he felt both the weight of his sin and having that sin fully exposed to the full glory of the righteous God. I believe that, like Isaiah, whenever we truly set our eyes on him and we see his righteousness, we are confronted with a clear view of ourselves. We may think that we're doing fairly well, that our behavior, thoughts are really not that bad, just missing the mark a little bit. Not as bad as those people. So long as I compare myself to others, I can think of myself as fairly decent. But if I'm full of pride or if I'm condemning or judgmental or self-righteous or unforgiving, then there's no way I'm really comprehending anything about the holiness of God or I've had any real glimpse of God. When we truly set our eyes on him, coming to him in worship and close fellowship with him and are encountering him in that special way, there's suddenly a great light that's shone upon us and what looked as a minor thing suddenly reveals itself in truth to be causing a large gap, a large gulf between us and God. And that moment fills us with distress. Isaiah's response was appropriate. Woe is me, for I am lost. That's from the ESV translation. I spent some time examining some other translations where instead of I am lost, they say, I am doomed, or I am ruined, or I am destroyed. An interesting version was uh, Young's literal translation, which says, Woe to me, for I have been made silent. Having just heard the seraphim calling out, Holy, holy, holy. I'm sure he would love to join in on that song, but he was made silent because of his sin. Another version says, I am undone. We may know somebody that has that all together, but Isaiah's condition was the complete opposite of that. Instead of having it all together, he had it all taken apart. He was undone. This chapter where Isaiah is commissioned to be a prophet, prophets normally speak in blessings or curses, and they often launch into some oracle beginning with the words, blessed be, or woe to. Here in verse 5, Isaiah speaks his first prophecy. Quick aside, this is chapter 6 of Isaiah. The first five chapters talks about uh, being a prophet already, but chapter 6 is kind of a prequel going back to how it all started, for explanation. Here in verse 5, Isaiah speaks his first prophecy, but in an unusual twist, He's not pronouncing a curse on somebody else. 
or on others or on his people. It's on himself. You may notice in that verse that he says he's a man of unclean lips. Why not the heart? Jesus said it's not what goes into a mouth that defiles him. It's what comes out of the mouth that defiles him. Perhaps it really is the heart from out of the tongue comes the abundance of the heart. Isaiah knew that he had not been wholesome in his words. Compounding that sin was that he was living in the midst of an unclean people as well. They had unclean lips as well. And he wasn't correcting them or setting himself, separating himself from them. To Isaiah's credit, though, in reflecting that he dwelt in the midst of an unclean people, unclean lips, is indicating that he had, at least had a concern for his people. Take another look at the words of Isaiah here. Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips and dwell in the midst of un- people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Nowhere in that passage does he ask you to be made clean, to be made righteous, to have his guilt taken away. All it is is a cry of despair. In fact, Isaiah has not even spoken of a desire to repent. It's just, it's only confession, purely confession. But let's see what happens next. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. He touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. That brings me to my third main point. We need a holy grace. The Lord provides a holy grace. He provides a way for us to be restored. The seraphim took the coal from the altar with tongs. Now, he's a spiritual being, not flesh. So he could easily have handled that hot coal barehanded. It wasn't the heat, but the fact that it, it was holy. It was a holy hot coal that he used the tongs. And this is quite clearly an act of grace. God sent the seraphim to provide atonement for Isaiah's sin. At that very moment that the coal touched his lips, that moment his guilt was taken away. That very awful thing that was causing that enormous gulf between him and God was instantly removed by his grace. The Lord provided a way for Isaiah to be restored. Now, I told you when Isaiah said, Woe is me, was because of his sin in the bright spotlight of God's holiness. I believe another component was that he had the realization that he was totally helpless to do anything about it. See, we can't solve our sin problem on our own. As much as we desire to, we can't set things right about the sins of our past. We need God's grace for that. We need the hope of our salvation found in Jesus Christ. If the experience of that hot coal was painful, Isaiah doesn't tell us that. In fact, as I see it, the coal actually brought healing for Isaiah. Healing for his sin and the burden of guilt. Now, 
the only pain that Isaiah describes was the pain of the recognition of his sin. I think we also have to go through a similar pain. We must embrace the pain that comes with the recognition of our sin. Confronting sin is always painful. But when that pain comes, we can have relief. When we realize the restoration that can come from God, from the atoning grace that he provides, because it was through Jesus Christ who took away our sin. A.W. Tozer, in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, said, We must hide our unholiness in the wounds of Christ as Moses hid himself in the cleft of the rock while the glory of God passed by. We must take refuge from God in God. Above all, we must believe that God sees us perfect in his Son while he disciplines and chastens and purges us so that we may be partakers in his holiness. Now, while the vision of Isaiah that we talked about here is wholly unique, it's just an amazing scene. I found something rather curious in my heart, that there's something really familiar feeling about this. This very morning, we started off with scripture and hymns. Our wonderful worship team led us in some amazing hymns that just stir in my heart. In that very way, I felt like I was brought into the presence of God. And we continued on with confession. while led us through the confession and atonement and that the pardon of sin. So there's a sense of everything is kind of familiar to us. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I. Send me. My fourth main point. We need to have a holy purpose. The Lord desires that we are obedient to his will. Notice that when Isaiah had confessed his sin, he was only crying out in despair, and not directly to the Lord. But here, after God provided that healing grace, after the gulf of between Isaiah and God was removed, I could speak. Isaiah could speak. The question the Lord asked was, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? To which Isaiah responded, Here I am. Send me. That coal that healed his lips did something for his heart as well. Lord did not speak. The Lord did not even specify what the assignment was. But Isaiah spoke up, speaking directly to the Lord, offering himself up for service. I don't believe that Isaiah was speaking boldly and confidently, like he was eager to go. Isaiah was just humbly submitting letting himself be made available. He was willing to go because God made him ready to go. He was willing to go because God made him ready to go. He saw God's holiness so that he could see his own sinfulness and he had to recognize his condition so that God could restore him and atone for his sin. Ready to go, all cleaned up, 
and with a vision of the Holy One, he was made ready for service. And I think at that moment that Isaiah's sin was atoned for, that moment that his guilt was removed, Isaiah probably had a realization that if his sin could be covered, the same could be true for his people, and that there could be hope. We will not be effective in our going if we are not made ready to go. If we are not first made holy. God sets his people apart in holiness before he calls them to go in witness. Holiness for the Christian is not a threat to an effective witness. It's actually a requirement. The holiness of God empowers us to be an effective witness for God. We are called to be a holy people to serve and to be an effective witness to a holy God. So, Isaiah received a holy vision because the Lord wants our eyes on him. Isaiah experienced a holy dread seeing the Lord shone a new light upon his sin. Isaiah received a holy grace. The Lord provided the atonement and took away his sin. And then Isaiah was obedient to a holy purpose. The Lord prepared him for the work that he needed to do. It's foolish to think that we can serve God until we first come to the end of ourselves. The pattern of becoming a good servant of God begins with seeking him and having a deep sense and recognition of his great holiness, of who he is, of his character, his nature. Through that, we begin recognizing our own hopelessness in our own situation. We see the depths and darkness of our sinful nature of ourselves. And through that, we recognize the impossible amount of space between our, ourselves and God that was created by our sin. And then we can recognize that that sin can be, abrid, be bridged by the incredible matchless grace of God as he cleanses us from sin. And only then can we really finally draw close and be obedient to him in humble service. My Bible titles this chapter, The Commissioning of Isaiah. Let's do a quick contrast between Isaiah's commissioning and the Great Commission found in Matthew 28, where Jesus said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. That is our commissioning. In Isaiah's commissioning, Isaiah had this truly remarkable vision that he recorded. We have his record of his vision, and we have all the scripture, and we have our eyes of faith. Isaiah was responding to the question, who shall we send? We are responding to a very specific command, go, go and make disciples. Isaiah said, send me, even before he knew what the task was. We, however, know what we are to do. Isaiah was ultimately sent with a message of judgment. 
But we are sent with good news. Isaiah was just being sent. We were being sent with a promise of the Holy Spirit. We were told by Jesus himself that he will be with us to the end of the age. So, if Isaiah can say, here I am, send me, how much more should we be able to be obedient to the command of Jesus when he says go? Lord God, Heavenly Father, thank you for the glimpse of the vision of you that we see through what Isaiah tells us here. Lord, show us your glory. Help us, Lord, to see your holiness as we pray, as we read scripture, as we sing hymns, and as we gather in unity with you and each other at the Lord's Supper. Soften our hearts to desire you more than our sin. Shine the light of your holiness in our lives so that we can see the horror of our sin and bring us to repentance. In your loving grace, Lord, hide our sins in the wounds of your son, Jesus. Bring the fire to our lips. Heal our brokenness, but break every resistance and excuse for not going out in obedience when we hear in our hearts, you calling us to go. Amen.